You're listening to the Arsenal Church Podcast. To learn more about the Arsenal, go to thearsenal.church. And if you'd like to receive more content throughout your week, feel free to download the Arsenal Church app. We're doing this new series of talks that we're calling Identity or ID. Uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking through some of kind of the foundational beliefs of New Covenant um, theology. It's a foundational thing for us here at the Arsenal. Um, I think for some of us, uh, theologically, if you've been around the Arsenal for a little while, um, this will be a recap, a refresher um, for some of you. I think we all need it anyway. Um, and then for some of you, this will give you kind of framework to a lot of what we do around here, why we do it, um, kind of how we how we operate um, and why, what the theology is, the kind of theology just being the belief and what we believe God is saying to us, has done for us, and is doing through us. And so we're going to just kind of get into some of the foundational things for that over these next few weeks. Um, Rob will really give you a lot more insight into it. I'm going to try. So we'll see what happens. I have a hoodie on today because it was cold this morning when I left, and now it's hot. But I'm going to keep it on. Um, I'm just going to sweat up here. But here's what's going to happen. We'll talk through this, like I said, um, give you some of that kind of foundational ID um, or identity of who we are as a church and then also who we believe you are because of what God has done. Um, It's funny, IDs, um, anybody, you have, I don't have my ID on me. You have your ID on you? Nobody. Everybody's like, no, I don't carry that thing. Um, We were just, Jaden and I, my oldest son, we were just flying uh, last week. We flew together to L.A., um, Jaden is 18 years old. He has a driver's license. He's had it for a couple years. And, um, he, when he gets to the airport, we've done this twice now, maybe three times. When he gets to the airport, he goes, uh, I have clear this thing where you like get to jump the line because I hate waiting in line at the airport. And he's on my clear, but he turned 18, like during the process of all of this. And so when we go up to get him through the line, he hands them his ID And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this looks like you. Oh, your ID's expired. And it is, because I don't know if you know this, but in Texas, it takes like months to get your your ID renewed because all the appointments are booked up. But anyway, and he's lazy. Um, But (laughs) I literally booked him an appointment myself. So he has an appointment next Wednesday. He's not here today, so I can just talk about him. Um, But he has to go get his ID renewed. The funny thing to me is it's his picture. It's his name. Like, you look at it, and you're like, this is him. And they're like, sorry, it's expired. You can't go through. And I'm like, what? So I had to send him through the other line, the normal people. Uh, and so he, he had to go through, and I, I get through real quick, and I'm, like, waiting on him because his ID's expired. It's not him anymore, um, which I think is funny. It's like, it, like one of my favorite comedians uh, talks about going to the airport handing his ID to the guy, and um, his name is Tom. Tom? My com- the comedian that I really like. I just went blank. Nate, Nate. His name is Nate, not Tom. Nate. His name is Nate. And his, his ticket says Nate on it. He hands the guy his ID, and his ID says Nathan, and the guy's like, sorry, this isn't you. And he's like, I, I mean, it, it's me. Like, the picture's me. That like, everything's me. He's like, you like, the guy's like, sorry. So he's like, it says Nate here. Uh, your name's Nathan. And he's like, I, I, I know it's a far jump, but like, it, it's, it's me. And he had to like go back and actually get it fixed and all these things. Like, the idea is really important. Like, it, it says who you are. And for some people, especially at the airport, when you hand it to them, it is very important that it matches who you say you are. So we're gonna talk about what ID means, but before we get into that, I'm gonna tell you a little bit of a story um, to kind of feed into uh, who we are and what identity has to do with this. One of the things that we're gonna talk about is the idea that we have been forgiven, that this is part of who we are. If you look at our, our ID in a theological sense, the ID would say forgiven on it. And so we're going to talk through that um, and what that means to us and how we operate from that space. Um, Before we get into that, I want to talk about all the way back in the beginning 
of time. If you go all the way back to the beginning of time and you find the first humans, they lived in these cool things called caves, right? Um, and these cave people would, are doing life on this planet and they would come out and they would, sorry, Kevin, did you see that? That was, <laughs> sorry. Um, I don't know what just happened, but there's windows, ADD, a car just drove by like this. Like it, it looked like it was doing a wheelie, but it just was just squatted in the back. It was weird. Anyway, um, cave people, cave people. I'm telling you guys, look, like a month ago, I started taking medicine for ADD. I don't think it works. Um, it's, it is not working. <laughs> the other day I was like, I think it's working. And body was like, no, it's not. <laughs> I see no difference. I'm like, I, you're probably right. I was just trying to, I thought I was doing better. What was I talking about, JD? Cave people, cave people. All right, so there's these cave people. Um, there was probably, probably, let's be honest, a cave woman who walked out of the cave and she was you know, feeding her family and doing all these things and she noticed some things happening, like this fiery ball in the sky that would make it warm and, and, and give them light so they could see. And she was like, oh, okay, there's that. And then, um, and then there was like, at times there would be this like water that would fall from the sky that would help things. She would notice that like the food that they eat, the plants, like they needed that. Like if, the, if there was a problem, if the fiery thing in the sky didn't come out, then something would happen to the plants that they would get food from and she couldn't feed her family. Or if the water didn't fall, then something would happen to the plant. And there was this idea that like something up there is actually providing or controlling things for us here. And there's something going on. And I, like I said, it probably was a cave woman that figured this out. And then she tells the caveman, I think there's something up there that's providing for us. And the caveman was probably like, you know what? It hasn't rained this week. We need to start sacrificing things in order to make this person happy with us. Because he, he, he'd be like, we got to do something to, you know, they must be mad. Whoever's up there must be angry with us because it hasn't rained. And it, and it hasn't rained, so we don't have food, and we need to make them happy. And for some reason, from the beginning of time, humanity said there is something, a force above us that is providing for us that we somehow are interconnected with that we need to keep happy. And so if you look back at the history of humanity, you see people speaking of gods or goddesses or these forces that they must keep happy. And they decided that the way that they would keep them happy was to sacrifice things. They would take their crops. And when they had their crops that they ate from, that they, they fed their families from, they would take a portion of them and they would sacrifice them. And for some reason, they decided the way to do this was to burn this offering to the God. Because if they did not, then the God would be mad. Or the gods would be mad and they wouldn't get what they needed in order to survive. And so... They wanted to keep the gods happy. There was this idea that there was these gods or God up there, far away, that somehow you must keep happy. And if you look, I mean, this isn't just biblical. If you look through, like, history of humanity, this happened. People were sacrificing in order to keep the gods happy. The gods up there. So what they would do is they would go up these mountains or these high places. They would build what they called altars um, out of rocks and things. And they would build it up so that they could go and sacrifice for the gods. The problem with this idea of sacrifice is that it's a little flawed. So if you were a farmer who farm, you, you created crops and you used those crops for your family. Maybe you sold those crops to other people. You traded them for, like you wanted, you wanted animals, so you would take your crops and you would trade them for the animals and you would, that was your way of getting more food for your family. If you were a farmer and it didn't rain and you didn't have crops in order to trade, it caused problems for you in your life. And so obviously your assumption would be the gods are angry with me. I have not done something in order to keep the gods or God happy, so I, I must then sacrifice more because my offering that I've been given has not been enough. 
So I must sacrifice more in order to please the gods, in order to get more so that I could survive or have more crops. But then on the other side, if you've had an incredible year and your crops have tripled and you've got so many crops now that you're just flourishing, well, what do I do with my sacrifice? I can't give the gods the same sacrifice that I gave them last year because then they're going to be angry because they're like, oh, we blessed you with three times more and you're going to sacrifice the same amount now? So what happens? Well, now I've got to sacrifice more. I must sacrifice more in order to keep the gods happy, in order to continue this flourishing. So there's this constant, I must keep God happy, and I don't know how to do it, so I'm just going to keep sacrificing more and more and more. And I don't, like, I never know if I'm in a good place or not with God or with gods in this world. There, there's a constant question of what is my standing with the gods, if you look through the course of history, you see humanity trying to find ways to please their gods. Even to the point of sacrificing their firstborn children in order to spill blood for the God to be happy with them. We, you actually see this biblically. We, we see some, some people whose gods they, they needed to please so they would sacrifice their children. You can see that, I mean, you, you know, like you look through history, there, there's, I think in 300, right? In 300, there's like a God who they're sacrificing their children to in order to please the God. Because something in humanity is happening, something in their life is happening, they're like, we have to please, we, we got to give more, we got to give more. God wants the one thing that we desire the most, so we sacrifice our children. Like people forever have been trying to find ways to please the gods. And hopefully, the gods or God is happy with them. We actually see the Bible enter, as, we, as we're reading through this, we see the Bible enter into humanity and we see similar systems happening. We see humanity in this space and there's a moment in the 17th chapter of the Bible in Genesis 17 where God comes to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, when he was 99 years old, it says, The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. It says, Abram fell face down. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of me. Or, yeah, God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you father of many nations. So we see God entering into this story and speaking to Abram, who he now calls Abraham, and says that you will be the father of many nations. I will give you this. Now, there's an interesting point in this passage that happens. God appears to Abram. Now, across humanity, there have been gods believed of that are up there doing something in order to give us life. But in this moment, God steps into humanity and appears before the man Abram. This is, this is weird. This is like revolutionary. This is progressive for the time. Like, gods don't do this. Gods are up there. We are down here. But in the story, God enters into humanity and speaks to Abram. Not from far away, but he, he steps in. He speaks to Abram. It's, it's revolutionary. Before this time, gods and goddesses were all disconnected. But in the story of Scripture, we see God step into mankind. And then we see this idea of sacrifice come up again. A few chapters later, Abram, or Abraham is told by God to take his son, his firstborn Isaac, up the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to God. We see this, right? Genesis 22, Abram takes his son up the mountain and Isaac, his son, it says, gets a little suspicious 
Now, here's the funny thing to me when God tells Abraham, hey, you need to take Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him in order to please me, and I will give you what I've told you. Now, if you don't know the story, maybe, maybe you, you forgot. Abraham was 99. God promised him a child. He still hadn't had a child, and then God finally gives him Isaac, and now God is coming to him and says, all right, now you got to go kill your son to please me. And Abraham says, okay. Right? Like, He's just like, all right, all right, let's do it. Like, you told me to do it. And here's why. Because like I said earlier, humanity was used to this. This is what God's required. To sacrifice your firstborn. So God coming in and saying, you are to sacrifice your firstborn so that you will have all that, you, that I've promised you. And Abraham says, yeah, that, that checks out. And so they begin to walk up the mountain and it says Isaac gets a little suspicious. And he says, because he's, he's done this before, they've sacrificed before. <clears throat> it says Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac to carry up. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. I don't know how he carried fire, but it doesn't tell me. Um, as the two of them went on together... Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What's going on, Dad? Because I think Isaac probably had heard the stories too. Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now listen, I know this is a good story about Abraham's faith in God, but I don't think Abraham really thought God was going to provide a lamb here. Like this is, That hasn't happened. I think Abraham is just lying to Isaac. It's like he's going to provide the lamb. Like you're it, but he's going to provide it, right? I don't think Abraham knew. So they continue up the mountain, and obviously we've heard the story Abraham literally lays his child on the altar. Isaac somehow doesn't like kick and squirm and get off the altar. But he, Abraham raises his knife and God says, stop. And then it says that in the thicket, there was a ram stuck in, in the plants, in the bushes, whatever, in the thing that God has provided for them to sacrifice rather than Isaac. And it's this moment where Abraham's like, whew. And Isaac's just like glaring at his dad, like, really? Like, I don't know that they had a good relationship after that. I, I don't know that my kids would. But it's this moment where God, not a God who is distant, but a God who came down and spoke to Abraham, says and does something for Abraham. He provides the lamb for the sacrifice. He steps in and provides. This is, this is unheard of. This is revolutionary. This is new. God provides the lamb for the sacrifice. This is new territory for humanity. It's interesting if you keep reading, as most of you probably have, you get into the next or one of the next books, Le Leviticus. You guys read that one? Uh, real fun read. Who in here has read through Leviticus? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. Uh, April's like, I have. It's interesting, you read through Leviticus, most of us are like, this is barbaric, this is weird, there's all kinds of crazy stuff in here. For a person in Abraham's time, this would have been interesting. In fact, in the beginning of the book of Leviticus, there are five sacrifices that are expressly outlined. It gives the exact way to sacrifice and make peace with God on very specific things. Now remember, humanity didn't know how to please God. They would take an offering and be like, hopefully this is enough. Hopefully this is what I'm supposed to do. And then they would wait and see if God was happy with them. But in Leviticus, they're given five very specific ways to offer to God. There's the ascension offering, the gift offering, the peace offering, the purification offering, and the guilt offering. They outline exactly what you were supposed to do and what you were supposed to offer to God in order to please God 
for these specific things. If you have guilt, you go to the Leviticus chapter. All right, the guilt offering. All right, I got to give God this and he'll be happy with me. Perfect. Now you go and give your offering and you know that God is pleased with you because you've done exactly what was asked of you. This is new. For us, this is barbaric. This is like, what is happening with humanity? This is crazy. For a person in Abraham's time, this was revolutionary. This was a God telling humanity, this is all you have to do in order to be at peace with me. Here's exactly what, I have outlined exactly what you have to do. Here it is. And so humanity said, thank you. Let's, Let's continue to do this. Let's let's make peace with God through our offerings that he has told us to give. But then if you keep reading through the Old Testament, we start to see things where God is saying things like this in Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. It's interesting, this is actually a scripture that Jesus quotes to the Pharisees when the Pharisees come to him and they're like, oh, I can't believe he's eating with these people. And Jesus turns around, he actually quotes this verse to them. Because he says, oh, Pharisees, you're all about sacrifice. But God's not about that. Actually, God's about mercy. Acknowledging who he is. Rather than some burnt offering. In Psalm 46, another time in the Old Testament, we see this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, the psalmist is speaking to God. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. So what is it? Was sacrifice a requirement of God? Was this exactly what God wanted? Or, as these writers in the Old Testament say, was sacrifice not what God wants? I think the short short answer is no. Sacrifice was not what God wanted. It wasn't pleasing to God. We see this. It's written in Scripture But I believe this was God entering into humanity and giving man a way to deal with his own guilt and worry that man already knew. This isn't a new system. This was a system that was happening in this world and God came in and said, look, I'm going to fix this for you. You know this system. I'm going to give you some parameters in it in order for you to not feel guilty anymore. Because this is how you think guilt and worry work. So I'm going to give it to you because it's what you're asking me for right now. So God comes in and he says, here is a way to deal with this. This is the way that humanity knew, a system that man thought was the way to deal with gods. So God says, I'll meet you there. But I don't believe this was the entry point for our relationship with God. I don't believe this was the plan for God all along. In fact, we see that it wasn't. It's not the end point. It's not the prescription that God had for his relationship with humanity. This was God meeting humanity where they're at and saying, okay, we'll do this for now, but I've got something better for you coming. Because later we see things like the Hebrew writer saying, who we don't know who the Hebrew writer is, but she wrote this. Um, it says this, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. The he in this passage, the Hebrew writer, she is talking about Jesus. He came to set aside the first to establish the second. It says that sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law. Because the law was given in order for humanity to understand what is happening right now. But it wasn't the end point. It says that Jesus came to establish the second and to set aside the first. Sacrifice system was still in place when Jesus came. When Jesus was walking this earth, Jesus walked into a humanity that was still in a sacrificial system, right? We see this 
in, in the Jewish time of Jesus, they were still sacrificing animals and plants to God as was written in the law. This system at that time was actually kind of managed by a group called the Sadducees. They were a religious group, and they, they managed this system of sacrifice. Coincidentally, they became very powerful and wealthy through this system. In fact, you can look up in history, they, they've done some excavations as I was reading through this, where they found like in a, in a home of the this, this Sadducee, a bottle of wine that at this point in, in, in our time would be worth like $5,000. And the Sadducee, this religious leader, they had these wine bottles in their home. They were very wealthy. They'd become wealthy through this system of sacrifice because what they did was you would come, if you, couldn't, if you were traveling from a long way, you would come to the temple, you would go up to the table, you would purchase your sacrifice, whatever item you needed to sacrifice, you would purchase it from the group of Sadducees. They would sell you, oh, oh you didn't come with a bird, here you go, let me sell you this, it'll be $15. And they would sell you the sacrifice, the thing to sacrifice, and the Sadducees became very wealthy and very powerful in that time. They they used fear and guilt to gain power and wealth. It's very unlike our religious systems today, though. <laughs> Rob wrote that line. But then we see this, this moment where Jesus comes into the temple. He comes into the temple with a whip. Right? You, you, you've heard this story. He comes into a temple with a whip and he begins to throw tables over and he says, get out of my father's house. Right? Like at that point in time, Jewish, like I don't think Jesus was like just like, I'm going to go, that's, I'm, I'm going to make this thing. I'm going to go whip some people. At that point, like he, he was making a point in their time and that was kind of like a show was what needed to happen. Now we do like three points they all have the same starting letter, and that, that's how we get our point across. But Jesus, Jesus had to come in and make a major point in this moment in time. So he takes his whip, and he comes in, and he, he throws the tables, and he says, this isn't it. This system is not it. Get out of my father's house. He was there, he says, to do away with the system. In fact, in that moment, he says, Tear this temple down. Tear it all down. I will rebuild it in three days. If you read the story, there's a guy in it. It's Captain Obvious in the back. He's like, ugh. It took 46 years to build this temple. How you, three days? There's no way. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not talking about the actual temple. Like, it's not the building. He, I'm talking about me. Like, you're going to tear it down, and in three days, I will rebuild it. Because I will get rid of the system that is in place that you believe works, but it doesn't. And I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to give you the new system, the new covenant that you get to step into, that this one is what this was all meant to be. In fact, this system that you've been in, it doesn't work. The Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It didn't work. It was never meant to. It was just in place until Jesus. So Jesus says, tear this whole temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about this new way of life, this new way of seeing things, this new way of relating to God. In Hebrews 10, we continue in verse 11, it says this, about the system that they are in. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for the enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The Hebrew writer is speaking about the sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross in order to rid us from a system where we believe because of our guilt and our shame and our lawless acts, whatever that means, that, that we have to bring a sacrifice to God. We have to grovel and ask for forgiveness and here is what I'm offering to you in order for you to forgive me. The Hebrew writer says, no, once for all time, through one sacrifice of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God and said, you're forgiven. This is the new system you've walked into. For some reason, a lot of us, though, our view of God hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still kind of historic and, and, and back in the ways of the sacrificial system. We believe we see this God up there that needs to be pleased because he's very angry with us. And so we, we operate from a system, in a system that, no, that one, never worked, and two, never, we were never even meant for. And we operate in the system where I, I believe that God is angry with me and I haven't done anything to please him, so I'm, I'm a little worried about what he might do. I have a friend who, and I'm, I'm terrible about this, like I'm a really bad pastor at this part where I'm like, I know pastors are like, you should come to church. You should come to my church. And I'm just not always good at being like, you should come to my church. Like, I love this community. I believe in what we're doing. But I like, like if you want to come, just, just come. You know, like, you know what I do. But I have this friend who I'm like, I did one time. I was like, you should come check it out. Come check the church out. And he's like, huh, I would. But I don't want your church to burn down when I walk in the building. God strikes me down. Like, that's not how this works. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I've never seen that happen in my entire life. Have you? But for some reason, I know he, he maybe doesn't believe that God's literally going to strike him down, but there's this idea that he's done so much to make God angry that he can't even step into a place that speaks about God. We have this idea of a God who is angry with us. Where does it come from? Why? do so many of us have such like a regressive ancient view of God? Well, for a lot of us, it's because we've been told this or we've been placed into the system where we are told that we must appease an angry God who happens to be very similar to the angry gods and goddesses that were never satisfied in the history of humanity. We have this, this view of God that we will never please him. He's up there. And, and even if we think we're doing right, we're like, I, I'm not really. Did, are we okay? I'm going to wear a bracelet. This is what would Jesus do just in case? And I'll look at it. Like we, we, we try like, ah, I think I'm doing all right. Like I was taught like, oh, you're doing good. You're doing good. But if you're not and you die in a car wreck tonight, Sorry, you didn't make it. You had, you had to just hold on to this, this salvation, this forgiveness. I had to, I don't know how many times I had to go up to the altar. Interesting. And I had to lay myself on the altar and beg for God's forgiveness for the things that I'd done that week, knowing that I'm going to have to do the same thing next week. It's the same system that the Hebrew writer says doesn't work. I'm begging for a forgiveness that I already have. See, for the first Christians, right, right after Jesus' death, this wasn't the case. They had seen the system of sacrifice and they knew it didn't work. This Jesus thing was revolutionary. They didn't think that sacrificing or groveling was the way any longer. They believed it when Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says God has reconciled, has made peace with you through Jesus. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. We might become and have become the righteousness of Christ. This is what the beauty of the new covenant is. You are no longer at odds with God because God has already made peace with you. The act of faith and belief for the first Christians was believing that God had done what he'd said he'd done and for all time had offered reconciliation to the world. That that was their belief and that's what they walked into. It causes a lot of questions when it comes to repentance. Like oftentimes in religious communities and faith communities, you'll hear, if you would just repent, then God would. And so communities take on their own. Like if you would just step through these hoops or do this thing, if you would just go through these four steps, then God would love you, bless you, be pleased with you, be happy with you, no longer be mad at you. He would kind of like you if you would do these But for the the first Christians, repentance was never, if you would just do these things, then God would do these things. It was, do you understand what God has done? And you're now being invited to simply trust it. Repentance was never getting God to do something because God had already made peace with all things. If you're repenting so that somehow God would show up and do something, you are bargaining with the wrong kind of God. For these first Christians, all that was left to do, as you became aware of the reconciliation that had happened at the culmination of the ages, was to celebrate it. Just trust it. Of course you're going to change. Of course you're going to reorder your life. Who wouldn't, when they realize that peace has already been made with you by God? If you're bargaining with God to do something, you are bargaining with the wrong kind of God. It's 1214. I'm going to finish this thing up. It brings into question, what are, what are, why do we do rituals then? What is the point of it? What, what do you, why do we even come to church? I have these most awkward moments where I run into people and they're like, oh, hey, pastor. Sorry, I haven't been at church. This like thing fell on my house, and I've had like all this stuff happening. And I, I promise somebody I'm gonna get there. And I'm like, bro, we're good. Like, I do have this like cosmic checklist in my back pocket that I'll now move you over a little bit. I this week's probably good. I don't know about eternity, but we'll we'll talk about that at church when you show up, right? Our rituals are just ways to remind us of the forgiveness that has come through the sacrifice of one named Jesus. Showing us God's heart towards us as he made peace with us for all time. Now you would think that the system was done then, sacrifice was over, but it's interesting. The New Testament writers kind of hijack, they co-opt this language, and they come up with this idea for a greater good where they take this idea of sacrifice and and the Hebrew writer says that there is one sacrifice left, one that does please God. That is to do good for others. Paul in Romans says that we are to offer ourselves as as a living sacrifice, which is not a sacrifice because a sacrifice is dead. But this is the best way to hijack this idea. He says, to live as a a living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
I urge you to be a living sacrifice. To pour out yourself for others. A sacrifice in itself is dead, but Paul says you are alive and you get to be a sacrifice for others. Lots of people, why do we do this? Because lots of people have a really tough time believing that peace has already been made. A lot of us in this room were like, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. There's a lot of us that didn't believe this, but when you become aware of this, it takes root in your heart and your eyes are open. Then you put skin and bone to this reconciliation message. You acted out humanity for those who would have a hard time trusting that this is really true. And we do that, people will say, oh, I, I can trust that. I, I see that. You put skin and bone on this reconciliation message. Essentially, the New Testament writers say to offer yourself as a flesh and blood example of what the reconciliation, the peacemaking that God has already done, what it looks like in the flesh and blood. You get to do this. There's this woman I know, she has this uncanny ability to see the humanity in people that many others are blind to. And have at least, they've at least turned a blind eye to. She for years pursued this man who through lack of understanding, many people feared and had written off from society. But this woman said, no, 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 he deserves to know his value is so much more than being on the fringe of society. She pursued and pursued and pursued for years, seven, eight years. And when she'd finally earned the trust of this man who had probably lost all hope and all humanity, she got him to the medical help he needed, was able to eventually walk him into his own home to live and to enjoy. And now this man tells me he spends his days at the library reading and researching, keeping himself busy as he enjoys life. I know another woman that spends her days and many times late into the night finding places for families, many times single moms and their babies, places to safely lay their heads for the night. These are families that have made the decision to leave everything they've ever known because of what they knew as fear and danger of their life. They make this long, treacherous trek to the edge of our country to find safety and some form of life for their children. This woman not only sees their humanity, but gets close enough to see the fear in the mama's eyes and to hear the trembling in her voice. She puts everything she can into finding them a safe place to stay, fills a bag with food every week for them, and then goes to work on helping them find a way to settle into a new life where they can provide for their families. It's interesting, these families she has helped now come together every week to find ways to help others that are where they were just a short time ago. They don't have much, but they come together to give to those that they know where they're at. They've been there. They've experienced it. They have a heart to help others navigate their way through their own journeys. Finished with this, there's a family I know who's so generous that when they hear about a young man that is battling addiction so bad in his life that he's at his last rope and needs to go to rehab, but the rehab that he needs to go to, even after pulling strings through connections and getting a discount, is still like $20,000. This family, without hesitation, says, where do we send the check? We want to help. As this young man who they've never spoken with, don't even know, but they've heard the story. They say, where do I write a check? How do we help him? And the beauty of this story is this young man finishes rehab. He finds his way into a job at the same rehab facility to help others find their way in healing as he has found his healing there. You see, putting on flesh and blood happens when we understand what reconciliation has done for us. And we get to enter in to a moment where we love people. A few years back, I know I said I was finishing. You guys are good. Get some more coffee if you need it. A few years back, during the middle of COVID, 
things were kind of rough with the church. Just, you know, what are we doing? What do we do? I was stuck in this place of trying to prove myself as a pastor still. Like, people, I wasn't sure what people thought. I was carrying what I perceived as a weight of a church and a community that expected more from me than I could provide. I saw as other pastors doubled down. They talked about their, their giving dropping significantly, but they were doing all these this extra things and that, man, their churches were now growing. And I, I wanted to work so hard to prove myself worthy and to make those around me, especially those who financially give to our ministry so that we can continue, make them feel like I was worth their investment. I didn't know how to keep everyone together, everyone happy as people began to draw, draw lines politically and spiritually like, should we be meeting? Should we not? Should we just be online? I was tired. I was worn out. And I wasn't sure I wanted to continue doing this. But in the back of my mind, I said, I have a staff that's counting on me. I have a community that needs me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I joined a dozen pastors or so in L.A. I went on this trip to just kind of do some heart searching wasn't sure if I wanted to continue. And I said, as I sat in this room of pastors, I sat across from a, a faith leader that I, that I admire and have just great respect for. As I told my story and my concerns about what might happen if I left and the people that were counting on me, his response was, yeah, you should definitely not do that anymore. And there was pastors in the room, other pastors that were like, whoa, 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 hey, no, 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 wait. We didn't bring Chad here for you to tell him that. They actually said, wait, 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 wait. We, Chad has a voice and a heart that we need right now in this space, which I, I, I felt good about as they said it, but I looked back and I was like, well, explain that more. This person looked at me and said, I've known Chad for a couple of days. And I know that no matter where he goes, he's going to fly the Jesus flag. He's going to love people. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He's going to love Jesus and he's going to love people. It doesn't, who wrote the script on how he has to do it? He said, Chad, you're free to do anything else. You don't have to do this for anyone else, especially not to please God. He's already more pleased with you than he's ever, ever been, never could be. It's interesting, there was a sense of relief and a weight that was lifted off me. It freed me to do whatever I felt in my heart needed to happen. And I'm not quitting, like I'm still here. There's people that come into our lives, they're able to, they've, they've captured this message of reconciliation. And they're they share it with us through flesh and bone and it invites us into a moment where we realize that God has made peace with us. I'm going to keep going. I know you're like, dang it. There's a story. This is it. I promise this is it. There's a story. There's a story of a young Catholic woman who, writer Brendan Manning tells a story where this woman says that she's having these visions of speaking with Jesus. And the archbishop in the area hears this story and he's like, I, well, we can't have that. Like, let me go talk to her. And so he goes to speak to this woman and he says, you said you've been having visions of Jesus and you're seeing Jesus. And she says, yes. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. The next time you see Jesus, you ask him what I confessed in my last confession. She says, okay. And he leaves. About 10 days later, she reaches out. She says, tell the, tell the archbishop I've seen Jesus. The archbishop comes back and he, he sits across from her and he says, so you say you saw Jesus again? She said, yeah, I did. He says, well, did you remember what I asked you to do? And she says, yeah. What? what you asked him, and she says, yeah, I asked Jesus what you confessed in your last confession. And he says, well, he leans in, and he says, well, what did he say? And the lady says, he said these exact words. I can't remember. And that, no, 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 but he says, what, 
what did I confess? What sins did I confess to Jesus? And she says, no, no, no. These are the exact words Jesus said. I can't remember. Why? Because scripture says that Jesus doesn't remember our sins any longer because of the sacrifice of him on the cross. That our sins are as far as the east is from the west, that they do not come together, that Jesus can't remember. She said, he said these exact words, I can't remember. There's a young woman who still sees humanity and those on the streets that others walk past. And the man who once lived in a box spends his days in the library reading and researching, just enjoying life. The scared young man that went to rehab by the way of generosity of a family he has never met now guides other scared young women and men into the place where he heard his value and he found his healing. And this trusted leader sat across from me and said, you don't have to do this for anyone else, especially not to please God. You don't have to do this for anyone else, especially not to please God. You, you don't have to do this to please anyone else, especially not to please God. So may you come to see that he has appeared. And at the culmination of the ages, he sacrificed so that we might receive and, and trust the reconciliation, the peace that has been made. May you believe that this God has forgiven you once and for all. And may you believe that this God is not angry with you because this God is love. And may you share this message of reconciliation with those around you that so desperately need to hear it. And may you go love well, because that's who you were made to be. Love you, Arsenal. Thank you for listening. Our hope is that you feel loved and encouraged. If you have questions or need prayer, please email hello at thearsenal.church. And don't forget to download the Arsenal Church app.